0: Alright everybody, feel free to grab some coffee as we get started here. Uh, We are primarily going to be in Acts chapter 15 today. uh, And we're going to address something that has been a question that I will say uh, for a long time I myself had. uh, But the question has come up more often lately and it's related to what is the role of the Old Testament law in the life of the Christian right now? Um, And I will say uh, there's so many types of questions that are related to this that have come up. I know I've had conversations with many this year on like, oh man, is it pagan to celebrate Christmas because it's not part of the Old Testament law? Or another question that's come up, is it wrong to call Jesus, Jesus and not call him Yeshua, which is how his name probably would have been pronounced. And these are legitimate questions. Um, And especially then, though it comes up with, well, hey, what about the fact that we are not... Well, like We we apply the Ten Commandments, right? You shall not murder, you shall not steal. We all agree with that, but we don't follow these other parts of the law related to not eating pork or related to the sacrificial system or related to uh, Passovers and feasts and things like that. How does all this work? And so I want to address this today, but to do that we're going to teach kind of a wider doctrine on the law of God and how we're supposed to approach it. Uh, So feel free, if you have questions, and probably when we're done, we probably will have a couple of questions. That's all right. I might be teaching on this again. Uh, But turn to Acts 15, because a whole lot's going to get answered there. Uh, But as I'm doing that, as you all know, I have to do long introductions. That's what I do. I do long introductions for short sermons. Um, So uh, something that we need to point out, first of all, is that we see three uses of the law in Scripture. One, Scripture is used as a mirror or like a yardstick. And the idea is that I look at Scripture, I look at the Old Testament law, and it shows me my sin. We see Scripture referred to like this a lot. Or sometimes it uses language of the same concept here, of like a ruler that I measure myself against, and I see that I am in wanting. I, I recognize when I look at the law that I am sinful and I need a Savior. Law is a mirror. Uh, second, we see law, the law of God, the Old Testament law, being used as a restraint. The idea is that when there is a set of commands that are clearly codified, uh, people sometimes don't want to obey them, but they, they kind of have some social pressure in, in the fact that like, hey, you're not supposed to do this and here's where God says it. And in some cases, there's even a punitive result if you disobey that command. And so the law in this sense provided some restraint. The third thing we see the law used for is when regenerated believers, faithful Christians, can look at the law and say, ah, this is how to honor God. And so it gives us a guideline here for honoring Him. I just want to point out, we never once in Scripture see where the law is used for us to earn our salvation. Not once. Uh, I remember being taught that the Old Testament uh, believers got saved by obeying the law and that they had to do works to be saved. It's just false. It's not there. Uh, Abraham was saved by grace through faith. Hebrews 11 gets into it. We even see in the Old Testament, it says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Praise the Lord. Salvation has always been by grace through faith. And so before you go any further, we need to recognize that. That when the law has been used, it has been used as a mirror to recognize sin, a restraint to hold back sin, or a guide to help us know how to obey God. Cool? Cool. Next key thing we have to do as we introduce is that in Titus 3, Paul, as he's writing to his protege Titus, who is serving in a pastoral role in Crete, I believe. I should remember that, but my brain is still not 100% fresh today. Um, He says to Titus, but avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. Notice he's addressing these fringe topics that get brought up that simply create division. Um, and I would say we see this sometimes where people are like, well, you know, could this thing be doing this? And then if this, and then it's you get into this weird, random, unrelated to the gospel, unrelated to anything else, and it's speculation. Uh, a com- I don't want to say a common one, but I remember getting into it with someone on whether or not Uh, God is just simply trying to prove something to Satan and that the Bible is not really about the gospel. Uh, It is about the gospel, but is it about this thing where God's trying to prove something to Satan? And I'm like, what? This is speculation, man. These are the kind of things, foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, but notice he also brings up quarrels about the law. These kind of details about should we do this? Do we need to do this? Do we need to do that? And I need to point out that Paul writes lots of stuff about the law, But at the same time, he says, avoid controversies about the law. The idea seems to be, don't allow error about the law to go on, but don't get into big fights about details, right? He's like, stop the error and don't create a bunch of dissension on it. Why am I bringing this up today? Well, I need to point out that there are errors related to the law that have been around for a long time, and some of them are kind of back again. Uh, But I would say even beyond that, even good, faithful Christians, we get a little shaky when we talk about the law. You notice this? It comes up a lot of times when someone tries to say, "Well, homosexuality can't be a sin, right? Because you know, you don't, uh, you know, you wear mixed fabrics, and so if that's part of the law, and homosexuality being a sin was part of the law, then obviously that's okay too." And I'm like, "What? No!" But at times, I've found Christians aren't very good at responding rightly to this. And so we get on shaky ground on some really important issues. Cool? So let me just bring up a few errors that we're going to counter. One is what we call antinomianism. Have you guys ever heard of antinomianism? Antinomianism is essentially lawlessness. Um, So when Paul says, shall we sin that grace may abound? They would say, yeah, absolutely, sin a lot. Um, The antinomians would say that the law has no purpose. They would even kind of go so far as to say that morality doesn't matter that much. They're like, Jesus paid for your sin, so do whatever you want. This view comes in various degrees. Not all antinomians are the same. But the idea is that they believe that Jesus' grace has covered you in such a way that it doesn't matter what you do. And can we see how there's a piece of truth in that that's misapplied, right? It doesn't matter how much you have sinned. God's grace is enough. But if you are indeed redeemed by grace, scripture says your heart of stone has been taken out, a heart of flesh has been put in, God puts his spirit within you, he regenerates you. Antinomianism doesn't really work if you really want to obey God and honor God. If you're a faithful, regenerate Christian, you care about what is right and wrong, you care about his law. Maybe not in the way that some think, but like you care. So that's antinomianism. On the other side of this is what we call Judaizers. And we see them re- brought up in scripture. We're going to talk about them here in Acts chapter 15. But Judaizers are those who were going around in the first century saying, hey, if you're going to be a believer in Jesus, you have to become culturally a Jew. You need to follow our tradition. You need to get circumcised. You need to follow the law. And what it came down to was you have to follow the law to be saved. Well, I need to be very gentle here and say these are not just crazy people for the most part. Some of them are faithful believers that thought that this is what you just had to do, right? Some of them were faithful believers who got a little wonky and had to be corrected. Others went fully into a false gospel. And so can we just recognize there were some that are like, oh, man, well, we're going to get to this in a second. But I want us to be careful because we can really quickly jump to like, these are guys were terrible, Some of these guys just they didn't know better and needed to be corrected. All right. We also have what we call the Hebrew Roots Movement. Has has anybody ever heard of Hebrew Roots Movement? Okay. Some of us have, yeah. And I need to say very gently and cautiously because the Hebrew Roots Movement, you guys, is such a wide variety of people that like there's good faithful brothers and sisters in there as there are those who are in error. Uh, Hebrew roots movement. Uh, the general thought of it is that they believe that Greek culture and Roman culture has overtaken Christianity, and we need to get back to the Hebrew cultural roots of Christianity. Now, is there some good in that? Right? There's some good in that. Right? If I better understand the culture of Scripture and all, like there's good stuff in that. And we can say, praise the Lord, some of these things aren't bad. One of the things you'll sometimes see in the Hebrew Roots Movement is instead of saying Jesus, they want to say Yeshua, because that's probably how Jesus' name would have been pronounced. And some, though, will go so far as to say, well, if you pray in the name of Jesus, you are praying in the name of a false god because that's not his name. And I'm going to say, no, that's, that's wrong. Because guess what? My name is Daniel. When I go to El Salvador and I speak, or to Nicaragua, and I talk to a Salvadorian man, They might call me Danilo or Daniel. Well, that's not my name, right? But it is my name translated into that language. Is it a different name? Well, no, it's the same name, just in a different language. There's nothing wrong with that, right? Uh, When we translate God, the Greek word theos, which is in scripture. Theos means God, right? We translated that into English as God, right? Right? If you are looking at the Old Testament, it might be Adonai or Elohim. right? It might be Yahweh. Praise the Lord, like we translated his name, you guys, and that's okay. right? There's nothing wrong with that. And at the same time, there's nothing wrong if you want to call him Yeshua. Praise the Lord. Um, but the Hebrew Roots Movement, at times, you'll have some that are just like, hey, we like being culturally Hebrew here, and that's good. And others will say, but if you're not, you're not in. That's a problem. Uh, There are those who would say, hey, I'm going to celebrate Passover as a way to honor God. And I say, praise the Lord. And then there are some that go so far as to say, well, and if you don't do it, you're missing something. Or they'll get so caught up in it that if they find a little bit of gluten in their house during Passover, they are wrecked. And they feel like they've let God down. This is serious. Like, Like, this happens. And these are faithful brothers and sisters who are led away into what I would call modern Judaizers. And at times, it goes so far as to, as to kind of break certain commandments so they can keep doing the traditions. And it gets kind of bad, you guys. Um, so we're not going to harp on them, but I just recognize this is a thing, and it's become very popular of late. But there's error in it, and then there's also some things that are okay, and so can we just acknowledge that? Um, We also have the Seventh-day Adventists, and some of you guys, like, these are really nice people, Uh, but they hold to a lot of cultic practices. They believe in a false prophet known as Ellen White, and uh, they believe some things that are flatly false, Uh, and that includes some things related to them feeling like they have to obey certain aspects of the law in order to be saved. This, by the way, is all distinct from Messianic Judaism, who are faithful brothers and sisters in Christ, right? Uh, I have some Messianic Jew friends who are like, Hebrew Roots Movement is a mess. You guys, stay away from that. It's my Jewish friends who are Christians that are like, stay away from the Hebrew Roots Movement. Just an interesting thing here. All right, so the big question, though, that's related to all of this is, do I need to observe the Old Testament law in order to be saved? Can I just tell you, if somebody tells you that you have to do this, and you've been thinking about, like, I thought I was saved my whole life, and somehow I've missed this, that gets scary. All right, so let's address this question. We're going to look to Acts chapter 15. Could I get somebody to read verses 1 through 5 for me? Go for it, brother. Venetia and Samaria, sorry.
1: Describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy okay. to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and elders, and they declared all they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, It is necessary
0: to circumcise them in order to keep the law of All right, so you see what's happening. Gentiles have been getting saved. Now, remember, the promise of God to Abraham was that through his seed, all the nations would be blessed. Now this seed, that is Jesus, has come. The nations are being blessed. The gospel is going to the Gentiles. And it's wonderful. Like, they're celebrating. But it's creating some conundrum because, like, these guys, this is, like, faithful belief has always been something that the Jews did. And so now you have the Hebrews who are faithful, and they're like, this is what faithful obedience to God looks like. Now these people who are not part of this culture are believing. What do we do with that? And it was a legit question. So, interestingly, some are saying, we've got to get them circumcised. That is the sign of the covenant. We've got to get them circumcised, and we've got to get them obeying the law, because that's what obedience to God is. Can you see how this is coming from a good place? This is coming from a good place. Now, mind you, Paul... The guy who was the Pharisee of Pharisees is the guy who's fighting with them saying like, no, this is wrong. So side note, when the guy who is the expert on obeying the law tells you you're out of line related to how you're applying this, you probably should pay attention, right? And so Paul is kind of making a scene. Well, this is what we call the very first ecumenical council. Right. Jerusalem council, the elders and the 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 apostles are getting together and they're going to figure out this situation. Right. We've got to answer how are we going to handle this practically? All right. So verse six, could I get somebody to read six through eleven for me? Uh, Go for it, Greg.
1: Therefore, why are you
0: putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to hear? So we believe that we will be saved through
1: the grace of the Lord Jesus
0: just as they were. All right. So notice Peter is doing some really good theological debate here. Debate's not the best word for it, by the way. Clarification. He's like, guys, first of all, God commanded me to take the gospel to the Gentiles, and I have. He's like, and God knows their hearts. He has manifested the reality of their salvation by showing the evidence of the Holy Spirit in them. So the argument here is they are saved. We haven't circumcised them yet. They're saved. Done. Um, check. Right? So the, and we see, by the way, Paul talks about this in other places, that Abraham also was saved before he was circumcised. Right. Abraham believed God. It was counted to him as righteousness. And so Peter is bringing up this very same thing. He's like, guys, they're already saved. Put aside everything else. They're saved and we've seen the evidence of it. But now there is this issue of like, okay, where do we go from here? And he's like, guys, we couldn't keep this law. Our fathers couldn't keep this law. The whole point of Jesus coming is that we couldn't keep this law. So let's not go and put this burden on our Gentile brothers when we know we can't keep it either. You guys with me? This is the argument he's making. Carrying on. Uh, Marty, do you want to read 12 through 18 for me, brother?
1: Turn, I will restore the fallen kingdom of David. From the ruins, I will rebuild it, and I will restore it, so the rest of humanity might find the Lord, including the Gentiles, all those I have called to be mine. This is what the Lord says. He who has made things known long
0: ago. And go to twenty-two, Daniel. Uh no, that's good, right there. That was good. Now, notice what he's bringing up here is that what's happening is this promise of God from before, that the gospel is going to get to the Gentiles. God is going to restore the remnant that he has planned for. And so he's like, guys, we're seeing it happen right here. This is what's promised. So then we finish up, and it says this, Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols, From from sexual immorality, and from what has been strangled, and from blood. Uh, For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he is read every Sabbath in the synagogues. Why this last phrase of Moses being read every Sabbath in the synagogues? So first of all, what's a synagogue? Anybody know what a synagogue is? place of teaching that would have been somewhere other than Jerusalem. So the idea was, you might not be able to get to Jerusalem. Uh, you, if you do, it's probably once a year for, or, or maybe a couple of times a year for a feast or whatever. Uh, but if you are going to get regular teaching or access to the scriptures and you lived far from Jerusalem, about the only way to do it was to essentially have a little temple franchise, uh, which was like a little mini, and like, it was a cool place. Like, the... They would be able to go there, hear teaching, it would be kind of a public forum. Um, It was a cool place. It was helpful for teaching. And so he's saying, the law of Moses has been taught all over you guys. We've got Jews everywhere. And don't you think our faithful Christian brothers, newly Gentile brothers, if they show up to a party with meat that's been sacrificed to idols, it's going to probably create some undue offense, right? Right. And this whole thing in the Old Testament law related to blood being something that was you know, they weren't supposed to drink it, there was some sacredness there. There was and so don't you think maybe we should just have them not do that also, so that we can actually be able to have dinner together. And then it should go without saying sexual immorality we know is an issue among the Gentiles, let's make sure they know not to do that, and that's pretty important. I will point out something, this is interesting. Some of these things related to like the meat sacrifice to idol or potentially Sacrifice to idols, comes up later in 1 Corinthians, and Paul's admission is like, like, don't worry about it, like, don't cause an offense to your brother, but it's, it's not the eating the meat itself that's the problem, it's the don't cause an offense to your brother that's the problem. In that same book, he talks about the sexual immorality, and he's like, but that's always bad, <laughs> right? Cool. All right, so conclusion here is adherence to the law is and was not a requirement for salvation. However, there were certain parts of law adherence that were helpful for creating some unity. And that's what we see in Acts 15. Make sense? Everybody with me? All right. So this does bring up another issue, though, because people were still going around telling Gentile believers that they had to follow the law to be saved. And I will say most of us have not grown up in an area that was, uh, had a whole lot of Orthodox Jews pushing this on us. Um, But how many of us maybe we've grown up in a particular theological tradition that held certain things very similar related to their tradition? Uh, If you grew up in an independent fundamentalist Baptist church, the King James Version is elevated in such a way, and I kid you not, there are those who would say that if you were not led to the Lord using a King James Bible that you are not saved. I'm not kidding. There are those who would say that if you listen to rock music or if you have a sip of alcohol, that you will, you could lose your salvation. There are those from Wesleyan tradition that believed that if you wore a wedding ring, that that was jewelry, it was a violation of modesty rules, and that you could lose your salvation. Could we just say that this same kind of mentality can carry on in other traditional things. I will even say, one of the things we see in a lot of the Hebrew Roots movement is things not even related to the law itself, but related to specific what we call halakha, which is like how you obey the law. And you will remember that Jesus was always running into issues with the Pharisees because he was obeying the law perfectly, but he wasn't following their specific tradition on how to obey the law, and that was a big problem for them. Can I just say, we need to acknowledge that at times there's probably some room for saying like, I'm not going to cause an undue offense. But it also, we get into real error here, as Paul's about to talk about, when we say that not only must you have the gospel, but you must do this also. Brothers and sisters, it happens in some Roman Catholic tradition. It happens in some Wesleyan tradition. It happens in some Baptist churches. If you add anything to the gospel, it is heresy. So this is what Paul addresses. So Galatians 1, we're going to skip over to Galatians. We're going to hit a couple of things here. Galatians 1 uh, I'm going to start in verse 6 it says Paul is writing to Galatia Galatia is a Gentile town where God, God has taken the gospel through Paul people have gotten saved and it's cool now Paul is writing to the church at Galatia later because he's hearing that the Judaizers have come along and that they are teaching a different gospel that says you have to do this this and this to be saved notice the language he uses here in Galatians 1 starting in verse 6 he says I'm astonished you are so quickly deserting him who called you into the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. His language here is that you are leaving Christ by accepting a different gospel. This is not that there is another gospel, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. He says, but even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. This says, as we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. He mentions this twice. That's pretty heavy. Paul doesn't do this many times where he says, I said it, I'm going to say it again. Um, accursed, by the way, is one of those words that's too soft in our culture now because it's been kind of overused. Uh, it is often... First of all, we would say, generally we would say that the word damn is more severe than accursed. They mean the same thing, by the way. But even the word damn is used so often that it's lost its meaning, right? It's one of the problems I have with the use of the word is it has a meaning. And there's a time where it needs to be used. And when we've softened it through cursing with it, uh, it's lost its focus. Paul's language here is he's like, if someone comes teaching you another gospel, let him go to hell like Paul is pulling no punches, he's like this is serious, you cannot corrupt the gospel. And a little side note, this is in the context of the Judaizers coming along saying they need to get circumcised to be saved. I can't go into great detail but in this very book in Galatians Paul says if they want to circumcise let's just have them go the rest of the way and he references emasculating themselves. This is Paul gets really harsh. His rhetoric is painful because he's saying this is how serious this is. All right. So sorry to mention that. But this is what Paul does mention in this book. All right. Galatians chapter two and verse 11. This is the next chapter. He says, but when Cephas, that is Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. This is Peter. This is like one of the three main guys of Jesus and he's like Peter was wrong about this and I confronted him. He says before he says for before certain men came from James he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself fearing the circumcision party. Notice, Peter is not telling anybody that they need to get circumcised to be saved. He's happy to hang out with the Gentiles, but when the Judaizers come to town, he's like, "Ooh, I don't want to look bad in front of these guys. I don't want to have to have this difficult discussion. So he quit hanging out with the Gentiles. And Paul's like, that's hypocritical, man. Paul's a lot of fun, by the way, because he's just not afraid to just say exactly what he's thinking. Uh, some of you know my my, my friend Pastor Yuri who will just bluntly ask these kinds of questions. Um, a couple of you have this same gift, I'm thinking, and they're just like, huh, hey, Dan, when you said this, you probably meant that, didn't you? And I'm like, no, well, no I didn't. Let me clarify. Oh, that's okay, but I'm glad to check. Right? This is what Paul would do. I love Paul. All right. It says, And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I had, uh, but when I saw their conduct that it was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, "I, ho- I, I uh, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like a Jew?" Notice he brings up, he's like, "Hey man," he brings up in front of the Judaizers, "Hey, you know, you've been living like a Gentile the last however, um, and you were fine with it. So now you're hanging out with these guys and you're going to try to tell them that they have to live like this? I mean, it's just kind of beautiful. Like he just." And we love Peter, man. Like, Peter's a faithful apostle. Peter writes 1 and 2 Peter. It's the word of God. And yet Paul uses these two apostles to rebuke each other to make sure that there's clarification. So let me just be really, really clear. No one but Christ can keep the law perfectly. Simple as that. He came. He did keep the law perfectly. The conclusion here is that he has finished it. You do not have to follow the law in order to be saved. Done. So then the big question is, what purpose does the law serve if, it, if we don't have to obey it to be saved? Right? Isn't this kind of the big thing? Like Paul's gone to great lengths to clarify, like you do not need to do works to be saved. And yet this same Paul will say things in 1 Corinthians 6-9, like if you do this, this, and this, you won't inherit the kingdom of God. So I'm saved completely by grace and not by any works. And yet, the law has some role. So let's address this a little bit. So remember we said that the purpose of the law was as a mirror to show my need, as a restraint from sin, or for the believer as a guide for how to live faithfully. All right? Important to recognize. So then the next thing we need to address is that we see, now I will recognize, the law is not broken up into like headings. When you read Exodus, well there are some kind of sections that fit. But uh, we would say that though the law speaks to at least three different things. We have moral aspects of the law. We would say that there are civil aspects of the law. There are things like, hey, don't commit adultery. But then there are other parts of the law that says, if you commit adultery, uh, here's the punishment for that. Uh, There's a law that says, thou shalt not steal. And then there is part of the law that says, if you steal, here's how you are to make restitution. There are laws that say here you're not supposed to lie. And then there are those that are like, here is the sacrifice for a lie. right? So we have ceremonial things related to sacrifice, related to cleanliness, related to Passover feast and so forth. And then we have civil and moral aspects of the law. Simple as that. So one thing we can say, how should we use the moral part of the law? Well, can I just say, um, Romans 3 says that it makes sure that everybody shuts up when they see it and they recognize I'm a sinner. And I don't know if you've ever seen Ray Comfort do evangelism. You guys ever seen videos of Ray Comfort do evangelism? You know what he does? As Sue's shaking her head. You know, he takes the Ten Commandments and he sits down in front of somebody and he's like, hey, you know, wh- what would happen if you died tonight? What would you say to God to get into heaven? And they'll be like, oh, you know that I was basically a good person or whatever, whatever it is. And he's, you know, they say different things and he responds. He's like, can I just say, like, you know, we have the Ten Commandments. God has given us the Ten Commandments. It's part of his law. He's like, and he he says, like, you're not supposed to steal. Have you ever stolen? Well, yeah. Thou shalt not lie. Have you you ever borne a false testimony? Have you ever lied? Well, yeah. Uh, Scripture says that if you even look lustfully at a woman, you've committed adultery in your heart. Have you ever done that? Well, yeah. He's like, all right, so I'm not giving you a hard time, man. But by your own definition, you are a liar and a thief and an adulterer. And so, like, and Scripture says that if you've broken one part of the law, you've violated all of it. And so he goes, all he does is use scripture, use the law as a mirror. And he cites the Ten Commandments and says, have you ever done these things? Guess what? You need a savior. And the whole point of this is to point, and I will say, it's great in evangelism. We are to, supposed to evangelize with gentleness and respect. Right? So you can't jump in and say like, you're a liar. Like what you have to do is say like, hey, I mean, I've violated these laws. My guess is you have to have like, they like, just go through the Ten Commandments. Have you ever done any of these things? Yeah. You need a savior. And there is something about someone seeing it. So watch some of these videos of his his evangelism. He has kind of a a funny way about him. But can I just tell you, like, people get saved. Right? So that's one use of the law. Um, And I will just point out uh, the confession that we hold to, London Baptist confession. Always, like, there's a lot of good confessions. Like, don't think that, like, London Baptist is, like, the only good one. It happens to be the one that we like. But it addresses some of these things. Um, In chapter 19 it says, God gave to Adam a a law of universal obedience written in his heart and a particular precept of not eating the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil by which he bound him in all his prosperity to a personal, entire, exact and perpetual obedience promised life upon fulfilling and threatened death upon breach of it and endued him with power and ability to keep it. You know what this means? It's just pointing out that before the, Mo- the law of Moses came along, God still had commands. There was still right and wrong. And those things are binding both before and after. Does this make sense? Right? So there are aspects that of morality that are in the law of Moses that are simply God codifying them and giving some specific r- laws related to their practice. But it's not like these things were new. And it's not like just because the law has been fulfilled in Christ that those things don't matter anymore. If Adam wasn't supposed to lie or steal or murder, neither should we. And he didn't need Moses' law to tell him not to. Cool? All right. Next paragraph, paragraph two. It says, The same law that was first written in the heart of man continued to be a perfect rule of righteousness after the fall. And was delivered by God upon Mount Sinai in 10 commandments and written in two tables, the four containing our duty towards God and the other six in our duty towards men. Have you ever noticed when we talk about when Jesus talks about the first and second great commandments, the one is to love God, the second is to love others. Simple as that. And the Ten Commandments do, are specifications of both of those things. The first four are about how to love God. The last six are about how to love your neighbor. And a little side note, if you go through the entirety of the Old Testament law, it falls into one of those two categories. But the idea here is that the moral aspects of the law should carry on because they were there before. Is this making sense to everybody? Cool. So when somebody says, hey, you wear mixed fabrics, so homosexuality should be okay, you can be like, no. Because that was a sin before, it was a sin during the law, and it's a sin now that just, guys, this is how it is built. It's how God made his world. Cool. Alright, so, then the question comes up, do we need to obey the ceremonial aspects of the law? Right. that's a real question. The answer, pretty simply, is no. Hebrews 10, 1, and 4, or 1 through 4 and then 9 and 10 says, For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered since worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any cir- uh, consciousness of sins? He's saying, hey, if the sacrificial system was good enough, then you would have been able to do it once and done. But you kept being guilty. You kept sinning. And you kept needing forgiveness. Verse 3, it says, But in these sacrifices there is a reminder of sins every year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Skipping down to verse 9, it says, Then he, that is Jesus, said, Here I am, I have come to do your will. He sets aside the first to establish the second. And by that will, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Praise the Lord. This is why in the catechism today, our communion does not add anything. When we take communion, it doesn't add anything. Christ's sacrifice was once for all. That communion is a reminder of what he has already done. So then the big question, and I know this is the one that you are the most worried about. Can we eat bacon? (laughs) Right? Can we eat Bacon. And I'm going to say yes, for a lot of reasons, not the least of which in Acts 10, Peter is hungry. This is Let me just tell you, I know people that are afraid to eat bacon right now. So I'm just going to tell you, praise God for our freedom in Christ. When Peter was hungry in Acts 10, he falls into a trance and God brings a sheet down from heaven with a multitude of animals in it. And he says, Peter, kill and eat. And Peter's like, no, Lord, these are unclean. And God is like... Don't call dirty what I've made clean. And he says, kill and eat, Peter. Praise the Lord. This, interestingly enough, is a, I would say, a confirmation of like, hey, that part of the law is finished. And it is used as an illustration for how he's supposed to go and minister with and to the Gentiles. But can I also point out, we have other passages that support this. And I know this might sound silly, but this is kind of important because there are people that are going around saying you shouldn't even eat meat. Can I just point out, in Genesis 1.19, we see where God gives plants to eat. Praise the Lord. So Genesis 1, before the fall, he says to Adam and Eve, like, I've given you all these things, plants and seeds, you get to eat them. Praise the Lord. After the flood, he says this in Genesis 9, 3, every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. I just want to tell you, that says every moving thing. It says, and as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. Okay, so before the law of Moses, God says to, to Noah, eat Eat meat. All of it's good. Now, we will recognize that there are plants that are poisonous because of the results of the fall. Uh, We will recognize that there are some animals that might be less healthy. But the idea is that God said you can eat it. Praise the Lord. Cool? All right. We're almost done here. Um, So further on in uh, chapter 19 of the London Baptist Confession, paragraph 3, um, he continues on the law. I should say they continue, because this was put together by... This, by the way, this is not scripture that I'm citing here. This is our confession of faith that simplifies some theology. Uh, it says, besides this law, commonly called moral, God was pleased to give the people of Israel ceremonial laws containing several typical ordinances, partly of worship, prefiguring Christ, his graces, actions, sufferings, and benefits, and partly holding forth diverse instructions of moral duties all which ceremonial laws being appointed only to the time of Reformation are by Jesus Christ, the true Messiah, uh, and only lawgiver who has furnished with power from the Father for that end, abrogated and taken away. The idea is Jesus finished all the ceremonial work. We don't need him anymore. All right. So then this question comes up related to this. How are we supposed to use the civil aspects of the law? Because in the Old Testament, you had moral commands then in some cases, it was like, and if this person commits abuse in this way, you kill them. There's also places place where it says, and if this person steals in this way, he is supposed to pay it back. I always think it's interesting in the Old Testament law, there wasn't really prison. If you stole something, you made it right. If you broke something, you made it right. If you committed rape or murder, you got the death penalty. If you accidentally killed someone... You were to move away to another city so that that family doesn't have to see you, but no one takes vengeance on you because it was an accident. It's kind of cool. Can I just say, like, that sounds pretty, that sounds a lot better than what we're living under right now. All right, more on that in a second. So I will point out, in Romans 13, when Paul is talking about civil magistrates, he says that they are God's servants. And I've talked plenty of times on Romans 13, I'm not going to harp on it again. But can I just ask, if we are to have civil law, Should that civil law be in accordance with God's eternal righteousness? Well, yeah. I mean, it should go without saying. But radical secularization has put our country and a lot of other countries in a place where they say, no, 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 we're not going to base our laws on anything in your revealed scripture. So then we say, okay, well, what's it going to be based on? Well, what they base it on is something very anti-God and pagan. Can I also point out, and I need to point this out, that when the Founding Fathers were putting together our Constitution at the Constitutional Convention, there were 55 of them. Of those 55, 50 were members of faithful confessional churches that held to either this very same Confession of Faith that I just cited, or to the Westminster, or to something very similar to it. Ones that we would all agree with heartily. right? Those guys, those 50 of the 55 faithfully presented these things. I know everybody says that they were all deists. The reality is the only true deist we had among them would have been not Thomas Jefferson. He was like it. Benjamin Franklin was technically. Adams functioned sort of like it, but then he did some things that weren't so deist. It gets kind of tricky, but can I just tell you, 50 of the 55 were in churches where they had to confirm a faithful statement of faith. Right? And so guess what? Do you know that in the Constitutional Convention, they cited the book of Deuteronomy, where we get most of the book of the law more than any other book, more than John Locke, uh, more than, oh, I'm drawing a blank on all the names of who they were citing. But can I just tell you, they recognized what we call a general equity to the law, that God has given his law, his law is perfect, and while there were certain things that were very specific to the Old Testament people of God, that the principles there applied. And so when they were making laws, things like, hey, You you have to have multiple witnesses to confirm that something's happened. That's biblical, you guys. The idea that you don't incriminate yourself, that's biblical. The idea that you cannot be compelled to say certain things. These are biblical things, brothers and sisters, and praise God for it. So, what we generally say, and I'm going to cite London Baptist Confession here, but I'm also going to point out some scripture related to it, and then we're almost done, I promise. Uh, Paragraph 3 of the London Baptist Confession says, To them also he gave sundry judicial laws which expired together with the state of that people, not obliging any now by virtue of that institution, their general equity only being of moral use. Notice this term, general equity. Um, So the idea of general equity is we apply the principle of it. So if you actually ever look at later on in Galatians, where Paul talks about paying pastors, and he says, hey, you're not supposed to put a muzzle on an ox when he's treading grain. And the idea is, the principle is, you're making this beast work, He should eat while he's working. For crying out loud, he's treading grain. And Paul, there's no mention of pastors in the Old Testament related to that law. But Paul takes that principle and says, guys, when a pastor is working, make sure he gets to eat. Right? Um, I believe in this. Praise the Lord. Right? Now, notice, and I will say, this, this is a principle that somebody misapplies sometimes. Because guess what? It doesn't mean that the pastor should take all of the money and have a jet plane and whatever. The idea is he should be able to have sustenance. And that's about it. Praise the Lord. Um, just a clarification, in case you guys think I'm going to go all Creflo Dollar on you. I won't. But can we, can we point out how then judicial laws might play into this? Uh, do you guys have railings around the roofs of your houses? Oh, somebody does. Do we have flat houses? Most of us don't have flat houses. And so there is part of the Old Testament law that requires you to put a parapet around your house because people would hang out up there. They would sleep up there and you didn't want children falling off of the roof, or adults who've had too much wine, or whatever, right? Can I tell you, oh, I have a pitched roof. I don't need a railing around it. Nobody hangs out up there. Am I in violation of the law? No, but guess what? I've got a deck, and my deck's not super high, but it is flat, and people spend time on there, including kids. Do you know I have a railing around my deck because I don't want someone to fall off of my deck and get hurt? That would be a general equity principle. Right. I would say it's a good thing that we have some building codes that say this is what you need to do to keep people safe at your house. I think those go over the line at times. But can we just say the idea of God's law being eternal and that some of it was very specific for a specific time. It has been fulfilled, but the moral aspects of it still stand. And if we are going to make laws that are moral, they better match it. Um, Cool. Praise the Lord. Any questions on that? I recognize that I just hit like 20 different theological topics all related to the law. And so with all that in mind, as we finish up here, I want to bring it back to the central focus here. And that is like, yeah, these things are practical. They can be guidelines. This is good. But I don't have to do any of it to be saved. I might do some of it to honor God. Praise the Lord. I know people that follow certain aspects of the Old Testament law because... It's The ceremonial parts of it are good for cleanliness. And I'm like, praise the Lord. If you don't think you're earning anything and it's practically good, I know people are like, I just don't think pork is very good for me. So I don't eat pork. Praise the Lord, man. That's fine. Don't go make somebody else do it and don't think that it earns you anything in, in God's favor. Cool? So all that said, I'm going to read this last little bit of Galatians three nineteen through 29. Because Paul says this, why then the law? Like if, if, we, if, if Jesus paid for all of it, why do we have it in the first place? why then the law? It was added because of transgression until the offspring, that is Christ, should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now an inter- intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promise of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness could have indeed been by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Side note of clarification, this does not mean that gender doesn't exist. This does not mean that Jews and Gentiles don't exist. What it means is, as far as you're standing before God goes, they mean nothing. Because Christ has redeemed us by his atoning death and resurrection. You are saved by grace through faith. Praise the Lord. Cool. All right, so with that in mind, I'm going to pray, and then Ken is on for the gospel today. God, thank you that you are faithful. Uh, Lord, thank you that you gave us the law that showed us our need for you, that has given us some guidelines and that still there are moral parts of that uh, that, were, that were part of your order of righteousness before you gave them in the Mosaic law and they're still part of moral order now. Lord, may we honor you as we grow in the fruits of the spirit. May we obey you in those things and never we ever may we never think that we earn our salvation somehow. May we never put a yoke of bondage on ourselves or others. That is not your plan. So receive glory as we remember what you have done. In Christ's name, amen.